you know, I'm not, I'm, you know, I was probably the bottom of Princeton. I'm not the smartest guy and I'm, but I, I am one of the toughest. So, uh, you know, I think some of those things are still, you know, still there. Hey, I can, I can relate to that a little bit. I, I always say that my, my hopes of being valedictorian were over after like my first round of midterms. So. <laughs> I Mine were over before that. So. I'm going with the flow, and thank you, Falaron. All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Go With The Flow. I have a very, very special guest with me today, Mr. Mark Shapiro. And I have to give a, a quick background for those of you who are not familiar. So Mr. Shapiro graduated from Princeton in 1989 with a degree in history. He was on a member of the football team. He joined the Cleveland Indians, now the Guardians, organization in 1991, working his way up to be general manager in 2001 and team president at the end of the 2010 season. And then at the end of the 2015 season, he became president and CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays, where he currently still is right now. So welcome to the show, Mr. Shapiro. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. And I guess the first place that I want to start with is Princeton, because I actually just graduated last week. Congratulations. Um, Thank you very much. And so just going back to your Princeton days, if you have just any fond memories of your time back back on campus. I think the, you know, the bulk of my memories are tied to the the students that, you know, I was privileged to be around. And and what's what's probably most impactful is to reflect upon how they impacted and influenced me in ways that I never realized while I was there. You know, I think when I, when I think back, you know, it's easy to be impressed by the history, by the beauty of the campus, by the, you know, incredible pedigree of the professors, but what you're not quite aware of until you reflect back is just how incredible the student body is and how they unknowingly raise your expectations and your standards for yourself. And I think that's what uh, that's what the university meant to me um, and uh, forever appreciative and grateful for that. Yeah. And that is definitely something that I was able to realize my t- during my time there, especially through being able to do this podcast. And that was actually one of the reasons that I wanted to start. Everyone that I was coming across on campus just had such very cool stories and were up to very interesting things. And I was like, this needs to be a platform for people to tell that. And so, yeah, I definitely I definitely was able to realize over my, over my time there that I was around some very, very special individuals. And then I guess also um, when it comes to something like the thesis, which is a bit of a very controversial topic on my podcast. Do you remember what you wrote your thesis about? Oh, of course, of course I do. <laughs> yeah, I wrote it on uh, segregation in Baltimore City housing. Um, I think it was called the Unbroken Chain of Discrimination, uh, Segregation in Baltimore City Housing from the, I think, I forget what the years it covered, but, you know, Baltimore is the city I grew up. Um, It uh, is not where I was born, but it is where I was raised. And it is an interesting city um, because it is a blend of the North and South. Um, it's got, and so when it was, as it was segregated from the housing and my dad was a civil rights lawyer, um, initially, uh, in his law career. So, um, you know, it was interesting for me to research how Baltimore was segregated because the South was segregated by law, the North was segregated informally by custom. 
and Baltimore is kind of a mix of the two. And uh, so, yeah, I did a lot of independent research and um, great experience for me and, uh, and, and still have my thesis, in my cabinet at home and, uh, you know, still, still something that, uh, you know, that, that type of independent research is interesting. What did you do yours on? So I'm a neuroscience or I was a neuroscience oh. major. It's, it's crazy okay. saying was because I already just graduated, but I did a study on looking at how biases develop and seeing if there was a way to mitigate that, those biases in, in young children. To well, keep a long story short, that's that's the Cliff yeah. Notes version. <laughs> well, and I, and obviously, you know, biases in general are kind of a, an a infatuation for me because I think they impact decision making in my business in a in a meaningful way. So that the, as a matter of fact, the biggest, um, probably the biggest transition in thinking about thirty over thirty years of working in professional baseball is the way we make decisions. Uh, and all of that evolution has occurred to regress out bias that I, that I was unaware of. we were it was infecting our decision making for so many years. Yeah, and that's definitely one of the things we learned. I learned in all my psychology and neuroscience classes is these implicit biases are in us more than more than we realize. But transitioning to what you just talked about, you just mentioned that you've spent over 29 years in baseball. Just going back to your start, um, two years after graduating, you got your start with the Cleveland Guardians now. Um, could you just tell that story, how, have you, how you were able to exactly get your foot in the door? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a still a good story, but it's not really relevant to, to young people that want to get into the game today. But, you know, back then there were only 26 teams um, and I had the fortune of uh, meeting a, a few front office executives through my dad, who was actually, you know, a law professor and a corporate lawyer, but represented players as a side, you know, because he helped a couple guys out of, you know, some tough situations and negotiated their contracts. So um, I decided, you know, because I, as a true liberal arts, you know, not having like a, a strong core, you know, uh, vocation like you, I, I was a history major um, that, hey, this this sounds good to me. I, I think I want to, um, you know, work in baseball because it, com- it combines a passion uh, along with an interest in business. And I wrote back then there was no, not email. So I wrote, you know, 26 cover letters and sent my resume out, didn't hear back from, I think I heard back from three teams and it took quite a while, took over a year. Um, And the only team that actually ended up even interviewing me or offering me any position, which didn't even have a title and was a pretty big pay cut from what I was making in my uh, job uh, at that time was, was the Cleveland Indians at that time. Um, who were the worst franchise in all of Major League Baseball? So you know, and, and it was going to Cleveland was not exactly like an exciting. You know, all my classmates were moving to New York City, and I was moving to Cleveland, which was a struggling city in 1991. So, um, but I got to tell you, Florin, I was I was excited, you know, because it was working in baseball, and the people that I was working with were uh, had a had a strong plan and a vision for what they wanted to do with that franchise. And within two years, we were thriving in a new stadium and went on a seven-year run of, of elite success. And because it happened so quickly, um, I got a chance to progress really quickly and, and lead pretty significant areas of the operation at a very young age, which would not normally have happened. So that sounds a little bit like a, a right place, right right time situation. But I feel like the, your rise through the organization you had to 
I feel like you're not maybe giving yourself enough credit. Could you exactly <laughs> speak to what exactly you were able to do that allowed you to rise through the ranks so quickly? Because I imagine there were other people there at the same time who are now not CEO and president of, of their own yeah. MLB team. <laughs> well, I, I mean, listen, I think the part of it that that is situational is still strategic. Um, it, it wasn't something that I was conscious of at 22 years old, 23 years old, but that is that sometimes the greatest opportunity comes in the most distressed situations. And when I took the job with the Indians, you know, they were the most downtrodden organization in major league baseball. They lost 104 games the year I joined them. They were the lowest payroll. You know, they were, if you've ever seen the movie major league, you know, they were literally living out the movie major league, which was, you know, kind of mocks a major league baseball franchise. So, um, but I, what I did, you know, instinctually, because I wasn't certainly conscious of it, was I aligned myself with leaders who I believed in and a culture that I wanted to work in. And uh, when, I inter- when I interviewed there, I was fired up listening to the leaders. You know, I was fired up listening to their plan, fired up listening to their, uh, the way they went about their jobs. And, you know, I think that was instinctual, but it was affirmed by the level of empowerment they gave me the belief they had in me and forever. I'm, I forever try to pay that forward that, that the, just the impact that true empowerment and belief can have in young people um, when they work for you and how much better it can make you as an organization. So that, that would be kind of the situational piece of it. Um, as far as my own, um, you know, rise, some of that's probably luck, you know, other parts of that are just a a commitment that, you know, to myself with that anything I was asked to do, this is pretty simple, right? Like anything I was asked to do, I was going to do better and faster than what my boss expected. So, and that's kind of just, you know, the basic premise of exceeding expectations. You know, I wasn't just going to do a good job. I was going to do a great job and I was going to do it with a sense of urgency. And I think as I think back to maybe why they empowered me to do more, um, I think that creates confidence. And, you know, when you when you report to someone and work with someone, if you're doing good work and you're doing it with a sense of urgency, that creates that confidence. Well, I'm going to give you more work to do and I'm going to give you more responsibility. And so um, that combined with the circumstance that we were growing exponentially uh, because of the new stadium and because we got very good very quickly, um, you know, all those things kind of aligned to give me to propel my career uh, at a rate that, you know, others might not have had. So some luck and circumstance, some probably good instinct on my behalf, you know, uh, to pick the right people to work for. Um, and then some discipline, you know, resilience, determination, perseverance that are still kind of you know, trademarks, you know, I'm not, I'm, you know, I was probably the bottom of Princeton. I'm not the smartest guy and I'm, but I, I am one of the toughest. So, uh, you know, I think some of those things are still, you know, still there. Hey, I can, I can relate to that a little bit. I, I always say that my, my hopes of being valedictorian were over after like my first round of midterm. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can. Mine were over before that. So, <laughs> um, and so you, like I mentioned, you played football at Princeton. Were there any hopes of potentially working in the NFL or was it always baseball that you wanted to go work in? I mean, there was probably like a, a short period, you know, from like maybe junior year of high school to sophomore year of, at Princeton where football was, was the sport that I loved most. But other than that, baseball was kind of something that was more um, of a, of a backstory of my life, you know, it was definitely a, a, a part of my bond with my dad. 
uh, part of my bond with my family. My dad was the son of an immigrant who, you know, loved the game of baseball, grew up playing it. Um, you know, it was a core part of, you know, his experience in, in inner city Philadelphia as a kid. Um, and so, um, you know, baseball, I played more years. I was just genetically predisposed to play football because I was a wide body, you know, like I, and so that's where I got recruited and that's what helped me get into Princeton, which was great. Um, but, uh, baseball was kind of my passion and my love. And it's, you know, I always say like back then when there were, when there were more paper newspapers, you know, when I picked up the paper to read the sports section, it was the baseball box scores, not the football news that I read first. So that kind of told me that was what my passion was. Gotcha. And what did you do in the two years between Princeton and when you started baseball or yeah, started very, with the Indians? Very, it ties back to the conversation you asked me about my thesis. You know, initially I wanted to go to work in, uh, in non, in the nonprofit housing area, which was kind of re-envisioning what, um, what good public housing could look like, you know, and, and, and better done. And there was a developer that I had met doing it back then that advised me to get for-profit housing experience first. So my first job was with a big developer in Orange County, California, uh, in an executive training program. Quickly, you know, again, a lot of times you learn from jobs what you don't want to do uh, or maybe what who you don't want to work for. Um, that culture did not resonate with me and the leaders didn't resonate with me. So I started looking pretty quickly after about you know nine months, probably for another job. That's when I started trying to get into baseball, but I still, it was so long and I had so little traction to get into baseball because there weren't the models of executives that were Ivy League, you know, graduates or, you know, it was almost all like a small group of people that um, were similar set of families or played the game that were in the game. And, and the models of Theo Epstein's of the world didn't exist, you know, in 1990. So uh, it was hard to break in. Um, and while I was looking, a friend of mine was an analyst for a big retail firm in New York City, and they needed an analyst. So I took that job and I enjoyed being in New York City, you know, more than I did Southern California. So that was kind of fun. Um, but I was there for like six months and that's when the Indians called. And I, you know, I hopped on a plane and went in for that interview. And when I landed back in New York, there was a, a voicemail on my old school answering machine from John Hart, the GM, offering me a job. And I loaded up a U-Haul truck with my little brother and drove, you know, the day after Christmas, drove from New York City to Cleveland and moved to Cleveland. And, and look how things worked out for you. We love <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> and I'll actually be moving to hopefully this time next month, I'll be in New York City. The apartment search is, is it's not going well, but hopefully I'll, I'll I find just, something just read art, I just read an article <laughs> that yeah, apartments in New York are hard to find right now. Yeah, I'm, after I'm after we're doing this conversation, I'm actually hopping on a train to go into the city to go look at some prospective options. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully something something works out. Um, but again, we've mentioned that you've been in baseball for 20, 29 years. How would you describe the level of excitement going into each new season based on the amount of work that's put in every offseason and just yeah. the possibility and the potential that you have something very special on your hands that could potentially win it all? It's interesting you know, I don't want to sound jaded, but I think as I, as I, I approach each spring training with excitement, I love that period of time. It's a period of renewal. You're excited to kind of see the game again. Instead of just talking about it, you're excited to be outside and hear the crack of the bat, smell fresh cut grass, all those things. Um, it's, it's 
it's a renewal. It's for, you know, it's rejuvenative every year to go through that. As we approach the start of the regular season, and this is unique to Major League Baseball from the other professional sports, it's 162 games, Florin. I mean, it's 162, man. That is a long, long schedule. It is the one thing you are assured, even if you're an elite team, an elite team wins you know, 95 games, is that you're going to lose 67 games. That's a lot of losses, you know? And so... I think rather than getting excited, I kind of brace myself before the season starts. Okay, prepare for the journey. You know, there will be ups, you know, but there will also be a lot of very tough stretches. That is inevitable. You're going to deal with things that you did not plan for, that you did not expect. Um, that is that is also a certainty. So I kind of manage my own expectations going in. Um, I've tried to let myself remind myself that I need to enjoy the good times that like we're right now, we just won seven games in a row or, you know, in a really good stretch, nine of our last 13. So I work hard to remind myself to enjoy these times, but I tend to always worry about the next thing that's coming and the next challenge that's coming. That's just by my nature. I think that's kind of our jobs is to be prepared. You know, we're professional warriors, prepare for the next challenge and, and that's coming and be, be ready for it. Um, so that's a very long answer to a, to a simple question. You probably didn't, you know, you didn't need to be that long. That's probably not a good interview job by me, but um, that, that is kind of my internal conversation heading into a season. And no, I love long answers. That's why podcasts exist because it's a long forum <laughs> conversation. So you can speak as much as you want, but how long did it take you till you're able to get to that mind frame of, okay, it's 162 games. I need to brace myself. Cause I imagine like your first season as GM, you're probably like, okay, let's get it day yeah. one. And then you're like, Oh, after game one, there's 161 more games to go. So how long did it take you to get into that mind frame? I have, I have a lot of memories. My very first game as a GM, I remember in being in Anaheim watching us play the angels. And it was like a, a nail biter, like two to one win. And my stomach was nuts. And I was like, you know, had a headache and I was like, and I'm thinking to myself, Holy cow, how am I going to last doing this job? You know? And I think, I think more, it's just, at some point, I don't know when it is, but at some point after being, it's after you get to the job of GM or team president where you're overseeing the whole organization. Uh, and after you've gone through the cycle four or five times, you start to say to yourself, how can I, how can I be sustainable, you know, in this job? You know, it's, re it's a relevant topic in today's world because more and more young people are thinking about sustainability in careers, you know, and life balance. Um, so it was more for me, like, okay, how, how can I have longevity? <clears throat> how can I be sustainable um, in, um, in an industry that creates so much pressure um, that is so emotionally and mentally challenging? Uh, and, and I think you just develop your own strategies to do that, you know, whether it's having perspective, whether it's having other things in your life that are important to you that you, you know, spend time and get balance from. Um, or whether it's looking for different things from the job than just external approval. I think that would probably be the most important thing um, that, you know, the external piece um, and the public sided piece is going to go up and down. You know, you're going to be really smart when you win and you're going to be really dumb when you lose in the eyes of your market. 
So it's so important to separate the results from your self-esteem, from yourself, you know, your sense of self. Um, so for me, it was a, a journey to work really hard to define myself, you know, like what makes me happy, fulfilled, at peace, content, who am I with and what am I doing, you know, to gain that level of fulfillment and peace uh, and continue to, to, to focus on the, those process based, you know, things that provide me with a level of fulfillment, knowing that if I do those really well, the, the results over time will follow. Um, but, but not getting to not riding the roller coaster of results. That's a, that's a part of 162 games. Yeah. And you mentioned, you, you just spoke about winning and you mentioned earlier how an elite team wins, wins 95 games in a season. So the blue Jays last year won 91 games, which is the second most in the last 29 years. So what would you say was your bar of success coming into the season after coming off such a successful season? I guess to just get better, you know, it wasn't a define, it wasn't a, to, to define a number. It was to make, you know, we very rarely do you win 91 games and not make the playoffs, but we had for the, I think one of the first times in the history of the game, we had four teams in one division that won 91 or more games. So because of that, we missed the playoffs by one game, you know? So I think if we get one or two games better, at least, you know, we'll make the playoffs this year. And so, and have a chance to, you know, to take the next step. But the most important thing I can tell you is that we didn't build um, the organization we built or the team we built with the thought of having only one opportunity. We thought we built it with the opportunity to again, be sustainable championship caliber team. Um, So we should, we have a good young core. And as long as we continue to make good decisions, we should have a chance to, to be very good for the next three, four, five years. And, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to reinvent it even at the end of that period and keep going. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so just switching gears a little bit, um, I was looking at one of your reading or watching one of your interviews about the movie Moneyball, which is a movie that you are, you are featured in and you described watching Moneyball as probably like a doctor watching a <clears throat> medical TV show. And so I was just a little bit curious what about what it was like to see yourself being played on the big screen. I don't know how many people can ever say that they've been in portrayed in a movie especially when those nominated for a lot of academy awards so what was that experience like for you just watching yourself kind of on the Um, screen (laughs) i think it was i mean there was a surreal moment when i was on the road in a hotel room and just had the news on in the background and the Moneyball trailer came on and brad pitt says get mark shapiro on the phone in the trailer and i was like what i can't walk out of bed (laughs) But then I remember like, you know, getting an advanced copy of the DVD and showing it to my young kids at that time and then being like, that's it. You know, so, you know, I mean, listen, the it was an education for me because when they sent me the script, it's not factually accurate. You know, I wasn't even GM. I was assistant GM. Paul D. Podesta, who the character Jonah Hill plays is based upon, was someone who I just talked to yesterday, someone who I recommended to Billy Bean. He didn't come in and steal on me. Billy was never in my office. Uh, Billy is a friend. So, you know, all those things are sensationalized to kind of make Billy's character in the movie be more interesting and more incredible. And, And so it was an education for me, one, that when you try to condense five or six years into 90 minutes, you're going to take a lot of liberties with the truth. And so when they say based upon a true story, it's very, very, very loosely based upon a true story. I think Michael Okafor, when Blindside came out, he wrote his own book and followed up. And they asked him why he did that when there was a book and a movie already made. And he said, because 
the book was uh, fiction and the movie was fantasy. So he had to write, he had to set it straight, you know? So yeah, it's, it's a little bit frustrating because it's not that accurate, but it's still interesting. And, you know, it certainly is a conversation piece and, you know, it's something I tend to try to at least laugh at rather than, you know, <laughs> but I, if I had to do it all over again, I, I would have spent more time um, making sure that the depiction was, was more accurate than, than it actually is, I guess. So when you get the script, was it just like, this is what's going to be in the movie or are they asking for your opinion at all? They were asking for my approval because they're using me in it. And I, my response to our comms person was, I'm not sure what I could approve. This is inaccurate. You know, I wasn't, this is not, you know, and I just, then I think it was just like, who cares, you know, whatever, fine, just use it. I didn't think it would be a big deal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And here, I mean, I don't, that movie's what, 20 years old and we're still talking about it. So it's certainly, uh, or 15 years old, whatever. But yes, I, I should have cared more. <laughs> yeah. The next time the movie comes along, you'll make yeah, sure exactly. to sit down and, and give all your give all your notes. Um, I guess just with our, our last few minutes here, um, and I just wanted to ask more generally about the sport of baseball. And it is one, so I was actually, I was born in Nigeria. And so I moved to America when I was nine years old. And <clears throat> initially when I got here, the sports that I was first made aware of were football and basketball and baseball wasn't necessarily one that I was as aware of. And I think I've looked at the numbers and seen that it might be dwindling a little bit in popularity, especially with people my age. Do you have any thoughts, comments, suggestions on how to potentially get baseball back to where it was once upon a time and beat America's America's game? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, probably one of the things that I, I enjoy most about my current role is that uh, I get to, you know, participate in and work uh, as the owner's representative on some committees with MLB, none more important than the, the on-field committee, which is, used to be called the competition committee, uh, which kind of shapes the way we think about the future of the game and how we help the game evolve. Most importantly, to make the game um, more attractive to a bigger audience, a younger audience, uh, and hopefully grow the game. So there's two ways to do that. One is to think about youth baseball and just get more kids playing, you know, which is also something I'm interested in. The other is to change our game so that there's not as much, most importantly, not as much dead time. You know, we've got over four minutes between balls and play right now. So everything that we're spending time on with that committee is to think about how we can subtly change the game without kind of altering the fact that it's one of the cool things about baseball is it's, it's the only major league sport that hasn't changed dramatically in 20 years. It's still 30, 40, 50 years. It's still basically the same game. So we don't want to defy the tradition that defines baseball, but we also have to be open-minded to evolving and changing the game to make it more attractive. And that to me is just making there'd be less dead time, not necessarily shortening the game, but creating more action in the game, pitch clocks, you know, strike zone changes, you know, uh, thinking about all the different levers we can pull, testing those things and ultimately implementing some changes as soon as next year, that'll make a big difference. Perfect. And that is with that, we are just about at 30 minutes, Mr. Shapiro. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on my, my little podcast. This has really been a pleasure and a cool experience for me. Thank you so much. Well, I, I wish you all the luck as you begin your career in New York City. I'm excited, for, although you won't be doing, you know, using the neuroscience degree directly. I'm sure you, I'm sure you will be. You'll be using everything you learn. 
uh, in the way you approach your job. And I'm excited to hear how your career progresses. And uh, and when someone has you on as a guest for a podcast in the not too distant future, I'll be I'll be looking for that. Appreciate that. Thank you so much. Take care and have a good day. You as well. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah.